0: Hey everyone, it's David. Just letting you know today's episode of Positive Regression is brought to you by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries is a leading manufacturer of CBD products, including gummies, tincture oils, energy shots, and more. Last year, Sunday Scaries won top accolades from Forbes, Men's Health, Allure, and Best Products. But don't just take their word for it. Take mine. I'm a proud CBD user. It helps... With my anxiety, and especially during the work stoppage, the end of a long day, a gummy or two, and an old truck series race on my iPad were just perfect, just what I needed to get back to neutral and enjoy a good night's rest. You can give Sunday Scaries a try right now by going to sundayscaries.com and using the promo code POSREGPOD, that's P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, for 20% off your purchase And right now, Sunday Scaries is doing a very cool thing. They've launched the Cabin Scaries program, in which a portion of sales will be donated to the Bartender Emergency Assistance Program to help hospitality workers displaced due to COVID-19. Again, that is sundayscaries.com, promo code POSREGPOD for 20% off.
1: Welcome to episode 63 of Positive Regression, the Motorsports Analytics Podcast. I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, the carousel of crew chiefs. What does that means for a driver? We'll give our thoughts on some of the action we saw this week at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and of course, our big Bristol preview. But first, as always, this is episode 63 of Positive Regression. This is the Jimmy Hensley edition. David, I'll be honest. You know, I know the name, right? It, you know, coming up in the '90s and just being a general race car fan, I, I know the name Jim, Jimmy Hensley, but I don't know much, or I didn't know much about Jimmy Hensley until we picked him for episode uh, 63. The one piece I do know uh, of trivia is that in 1992, he was the Cup Series Rookie of the Year at the young age of 47 years old. And while he never raced a full cup series, uh, a full cup season, one of some of his career starts did come in a number 63 car. So David, why Jimmy Hensley for episode 63?
0: Well, that's just one of the numbers that he drove. He bounced around quite a bit and he actually has this reputation now in hindsight as this super substitute driver. Huh. And there were two very high profile instances of this. He has one Cup Series pole in his career and it came in 1989. Uh, but the car that it took place in, that was interesting. He captured the pole at Martinsville driving Dale Earnhardt's number three for really? RCR. He filled in for Earnhardt on pole day. And this was after Hurricane Hugo came in and ravaged, uh, the Carolinas and the Charlotte area and Earnhardt's, uh, property, which had, uh, land for farming. It, it was, it was just a mess. So Earnhardt wanted to tend to his property instead of qualifying his car and he handpicked Hensley to drive on poll day and it was a smart decision. Hensley went out, got the poll, uh, and he earned Dale Earnhardt, a plum pit stall for Martinsville, which can be viewed as a very big deal. In 1993, Alan Kowicki was tragically killed in a plane crash. And in accordance with his lasting directions, in the event that he got sick or incapacitated, his choice to replace him was Jimmy Hensley. Wow. And when Kowicki died, uh, it was Felix Sabatis was... uh was cast with carrying out Kowicki's instructions and the sale of the team. Uh, and Sabatis made sure that Jimmy Hensley was behind the wheel during the team's transition. Jeff Bodine eventually bought the team, but in the interim, Jimmy Hensley was the driver. He drove 15 races in Alan Kowicki's number seven car. He earned seven top 15 finishes. And I actually have a, a diecast of uh, the Jimmy Hensley number no. seven Haynes Ford. Uh, very cool. He only drove that once. Um, his best finish behind the wheel of that car, ironically, came at Bristol. He finished sixth mm. and Bristol was, of course, the destination of Kowicki's plane when it crashed. So a poetic result in that regard. But here's the curious thing uh, about uh, the, the situation as Kowicki's sub Jimmy Hensley never really knew Alan Kowicki. He told told Hall of Fame journalist Tom Higgins uh, that he was surprised and he was flattered, but he he didn't really understand where um, this admiration came from. He said, every time I saw Alan, uh, especially at racetracks, he appeared to be concentrating so hard and was so deep in thought that I didn't want to bother him. I didn't want to interrupt. We would just speak and that was about it. We were friendly, but we never stood around and had what you would call a long conversation. So imagine his surprise when it was revealed after his death. Hey, the driver actually, you were his, you were his chosen pick to replace him in the event that something crazy like this happened and there he is he had a a 15 race stint in the seven car which was the reigning championship team and later that year he went on to drive for richard petty and drive for morgan mcclure motorsports in the four car after Ernie Irvin was plucked to take over for the 28 after Davey Allison died. Um, so 93, a very strange season for Jimmy Hensley, but
1: apparently very well-respected among his peers. Yes, and from Ridgeway, Virginia, home of Martinsville uh, Speedway. And uh, I just learned a lot about Jimmy Hensley, David, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but again, one of those names, you know, again, coming up in the 90s, like like you and I have talked about, you know, I started really, you know, paying attention, 92. 293 and jimmy hensley one of those names in the field but i didn't know that much about him so i appreciate this
0: oh yeah yeah one of those um i mean really a, a bush series regular right one uh, maybe about six or so races in that series two and truck wins yes and drove for richard petty there as well um that's kind of where where he stands out among his mark but I think you know, I think there's always this fascination in racing with the role of super sub. Maybe Regan Smith has taken that over in recent years, but Hensley was that guy in the late eighties and early nineties, um, thanks in part to uh these two high profile rides where he was asked to do a job and he came in and did it very well. Good stuff.
1: Episode sixty three of Positive Regression, the Jimmy Hensley edition. All right, let's get this episode started. Uh, the trucks were back this week in, in an eventful, bounty-filled race at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And in doing some of the preparation, remember, they'd been off for so long. They'd been off for longer than the real off-season. So uh, it was interesting to go through and see some of the changes that had been made. And, David, I brought up to you that Todd Gilliland, after two races this season, already had a new crew chief they'd made a swap he entered the season in the 38 for Front Row Motorsports with John Leonard as the crew chief and just two races in now or for the third race which you know obviously hadn't been until uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway a few months later but he had a new crew chief in Chris Lawson uh, a crew chief he had worked with before in the K&N series and other short track stuff and had a lot of success but, uh, David, we've talked about this before, I think, but you pointed out this is the eighth crew chief in four truck series seasons for Todd Gilliland. Uh, so we're going to use this as a jumping off point. First, we'll, we'll start with Todd. We've seen glimpses of success. We've seen, uh, obviously, the, the talent that he has in climbing the NASCAR ladder. But to have all these crew chiefs, what, what do you think that says? Is, is that an indictment on the driver? Is this just circumstance? What stands out to you when, when you see another change at crew chief for a young driver?
0: It's not an indictment yet. Um, I think every, every situation in which we talk about a driver having a lot of crew chiefs in a, in a short span, we have to treat differently, but you can't blame a driver for wanting to be wanted, right? Uh, it, what what came to mind when you brought this up was uh, the recent conversations that I had with both Dale Jarrett and Martin Truex as a part of my uh, Leap Year series of articles. And there was just this common feeling that both of them had. Dale Jarrett went through his entire career never feeling a sense of permanence in one spot. He was always filling in with a team or with a team for just a, a, temporary spurt and the cars weren't built with him in mind. The team wasn't built around him until he got to Robert Yates racing and they built the 88 team with him in mind. And he found just this kindred spirit in Todd Parrott in which they just worked relentlessly to become really good. And same with Truex. I mean, he pointed out when he got to Furniture Row Racing, the very first test session, the cars were terrible. He called them evil. <laughs> and, and it was a young engineer in his first year there, Cole Pern, that sort of realized what Truex was saying about the cars was true. And when Pern became the crew chief, Truex just took to him because he understood Pern as a guy that believed in his abilities. So there is that. There is a a wanting a crew chief that truly gets what you're attempting to do, what you would like your car to do, and how you would like it to feel. So to that end, yeah, young Todd Gilliland is burning through a lot of crew chiefs and he had success with Chris Lawson in, uh, what is now the Arca West series. So there is a familiar, a familiarity there. There is going to be some continuity. And as a young driver, he hasn't had that since entering the truck series, certainly. And at some point you, you need to see if you can make it work for a while with one crew chief. But if there isn't a mutual buy-in, if there is not a, uh, a shared belief, Um, Between the driver and the crew chief, then yeah, it's probably not going to work. I can really only think of one instance when it did work, and that was when Tony Stewart won the championship in 2011. He had already announced that Steve Addington was replacing Darian Grubb as crew chief, and they won the championship with Darian Grubb anyway. And it, it became... Uh, a really strange situation when he was, after winning the championship, it's him and Darian Grubb in the press conference, and he's <laughs> asked, well, are, are are you sure you don't want to get rid of Darian Grubb? And Tony's like, oh, no, Steve Addington's my guy. It was awkward for everybody at the press conference except for Tony, who clearly didn't care. But that's the only situation in which this this worked out, not to say that you have to postpone uh, trying to improve your team because you haven't had that high level of continuity yet, but sometimes you have to recognize a bad situation. I don't know if that's what this was, but it's certainly an opportunity to pair uh, Gilliland with Chris Lawson, two guys that had success at a lower division just to see what happens. And based on where Todd is at in his career, how highly he is regarded and how little he has produced in terms of superficial stats, I think it's, it's worth the roll of the dice.
1: Yeah. And this is the the latest change for Gilliland. it was just so surprising because again, it was just such a small sample size. They had Daytona and they had Las Vegas. Um, and vegas look they rolled off the truck they they didn't have good practices i i can tell you that uh they, they changed just about everything there was a lot of frustration but they ended up running well in the race they made a lot of changes a, and improved so it was just surprising again i don't you don't know the full story about exactly what happened or why the change was made so soon but it was just surprising after after two races to to see a change made in this instance um, having all these different crew chiefs, we, we know, uh, Todd Gilliland was over at Kyle Bush Motorsports, uh, not the success, at least you were, you would associate with, uh, what you would expect from a, a KBM team. And, uh, we know the, the, the headbutting that there was over there between, uh, Todd and Kyle at times and, and the comments, some deserved, maybe some not. But bigger picture, David, when, when, When you're getting, when a young driver is getting different crew chiefs, so many of them in a short span, does that hinder development at all? Or is this the path that every young driver needs to take to find their one crew chief, if you will?
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's not something that is normal or should be normal. Uh, you know, you can't, you, you, you can blame a team for not understanding what the driver is versus what the crew chief is, right? Because much like some drivers can't drive cars built specifically for other drivers, which was the case that Dale Jarrett made to me, it much like some drivers can't do that. Some crew chiefs can't work with certain driving styles or build around those styles or call races to a degree of comfort. Um, there was one crew chief that I have in my mind that was working with a young driver and everything was about that one time he worked with Carl Edwards and this young driver told me, he's like, well, I'm not Carl Edwards. And this <laughs> guy's really trying to build a car for Carl Edwards. Who's not going to drive this car. And that was, that was kind of the, the crux of their issue. You are going to have that. So just because there is who is seemingly a good crew chief within the organization he might only be good for one driver or a certain type of driver, and that's not universal across the board. So to, to go through, I don't know. Was it, would you call it like a taste testing of crew chiefs that Todd had <laughs> early on it at, at KBM? Like, I don't, I don't know if there was a goal in place or they just had this driver that they were tasked with plugging into a ride and they were just trying to, shoehorn it in to make sure that it happened to appease Toyota. I don't know. I can believe that that was the case. But when you are tasked with developing a young driver, you sort of have to figure out what makes the driver tick and work from there. And when you have multiple crew chiefs trying to fill that role, it's sort of a tell that you have not figured that out. So, yeah, shame on KBM for not getting that right in the first place. But as this continues, it's clear that now it might be skewing towards a driver problem and away a from an organizational problem, especially if you make the connection that this is sort of a, a DGR Crosley built program and G- Gilliland is the, is the G in that DGR. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, you you wanna you wanna point in the direction of somebody like an Austin Dillon who's also burned through crew chiefs? Then yeah, there's a similarity there, and the only difference between the two is going to be how much success they achieve.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's add some context to this because uh, you know Todd Gillen's not the only driver who's had different crew chiefs as he's come up. Um, I think we you know in discussing this, we, you pointed out to him Kevin Harvick and Austin Dillon. Kevin Harvick, we, we know the circumstances that thrust him into the Cup Series, but he had a number of crew chiefs, uh, Kevin Hamlin and Gil Martin, Todd Barrier, Gil Martin again. Uh, before, before. No, no, f- keep going. Yeah. Keep
0: going. Because it's, it's then Shane Wilson and then it's Gil Martin
1: again. It's, <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. It's, well, what I'm saying is we all in life need to find our Rodney Childers, right? And sometimes it takes maybe a year. Sometimes it takes, uh, nearly a decade before we find our Rodney Childers in life. But Kevin Harvick eventually did. Um, and then, you know, you can kind of compare that with Austin Dillon, who's also been through uh, Gil Martin and Justin Alexander and Slugger Labby and Danny Stockman and Justin Alexander again. Um, I mean, there are different situations for different drivers, but we've seen this before where different crew chiefs come in and I, I don't know if it's just trying to find that right fit. How do you look at those situations?
0: I was touring the, the Hooters Pro Cup, uh, series many years ago and their top driver at the time was Clay Rogers and Clay Rogers told me that if he could have one crew chief for the rest of his life, it would be Rodney Childers. And hmm. this was when Childers was at Michael Waltrip Racing. So this was before that he, he broke out and certainly became the Rodney Childers that we now uh, know and appreciate, and he'll probably get in the Hall of Fame one day based on what he's accomplished with Kevin Harvick. But you're right. Every driver is searching for a certain feel for their car. And in order to make that happen, they're searching for uh, a certain crew chief. Um It's been said, it's been told to me that Kurt Busch has been consistently looking for somebody like Jimmy Finnig, who he had... When he was a rookie and he had a lot of success when he first came into NASCAR with Roush Racing, won the championship in 04, which was his third season. And he's still been just trying to find that old cantankerous gunslinger of a crew chief. And maybe he's happy with Matt McCall. I don't know. Completely different styles. But when you are a Cup Series driver, you know what you want your team to be. You know what you want your car to do. And you probably have an idea of the crew chief that you would like. It's not always easy. Uh, it's not always easy to find a crew chief that is going to reciprocate that kind of belief in a driver. Like, it, it makes sense now. Austin Dillon is on his sixth crew chief tenure in seven seasons. It might be tough to find a crew chief that has this dedicated belief into Austin Dillon's driving ability. I don't think that's um, such a, a crazy thing to say or suggest, but he's got to find someone that does believe in it or is at least going to work in order to make that three team pretty competitive or at least compete for playoff spots. And maybe they're close. You know, Justin Alexander is the only crew chief he's ever won a cup race with. He's back with him this year, but it's a balancing act and there clearly are no guarantees. Like you mentioned, Harvick has, has definitely gone through his share of crew chiefs, but the difference why we don't compare Kevin Harvick to Austin Dillon was Kevin Harvick, despite not having his forever crew chief yet, he still won 23 races in the cup series before he ever got to Rodney Childers. He was having success. So we can, Push some of these, you know, foibles under the rug. If we accept his success, we can also accept the fact that he's probably driving some of these crew chiefs out of their minds and, and, <laughs> and, and pushing them to get them out of the role and to get somebody new in there. Um, that changes the narrative when in reality, all drivers are looking for a good crew chief. It's not just the ones that are bad looking for someone trying to make them good. The good drivers are trying to find a crew chief that can accentuate their abilities.
1: All right. Some good crew chief talk there. Uh, A lot of crew chief talk, David, coming out of Charlotte, the Coca-Cola 600. Uh, Let's look back on that because obviously we're recording this Wednesday night. Uh, Unfortunately, it rained out for the second Charlotte race, but we did see and learn a lot uh, during the annual Coca-Cola 600 on Sunday night. And crew chiefs played a big role in that one. And I also, my takeaways, uh, uh, speed and, and track position. So where do you want to start, David? Uh, well, we can talk about crew chiefs. Do you want to talk about the good or the bad of, Let, of crew chiefing? Let's talk about the good to start off. Okay. Why not?
0: I, I found it interesting that last year during this race, we sort of saw uh the... The new restart aesthetic with the current low horsepower rules package. We saw these, the tendency on restarts for those on fresher tires to be able to catch those higher in the order, but on old tires or only taking two tires. It was just, it was a much quicker scenario for them because there was no acceleration. And we saw that in Martin Turex's is when he passed Ryan Newman and David Reagan on old tires. Like they were nothing at the end of last year's race, but this is a year later and Goodyear brought a different tire. Drivers uh, noticed this initially. We saw accidents in qualifying drivers just trying to acquiesce what the new tire brought. And what it also brought is what we saw after the red flag was two tires versus four sort of didn't matter. There wasn't a whole lot of tire wear. And when a car like the 88 car, already in the top four for central speed, takes only two tires on a stop, it gets that clean air and it's gone. Alex Bowman won the first two stages thanks to Greg Ives's call. And, uh, I follow Cole Pern on Twitter and he, 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 he touted that as being the call of the race. And he's absolutely right because it was something of a trendsetter. And when the, these teams return Thursday night now to Charlotte, we're probably going to see more of these calls because we know what is possible. And that was, that was the good. I mean, that was. That was an impressive decision. Now, he had an hour to come up with it because of the red flag <laughs> rain delay, but in fairness, so did every other crew chief, sure. and, and they failed. So um, what a great call. And the, um, the juxtaposition between that and the calls that we saw at the end of the race that had you and I howling on some of the comments on social media about it after the race from Chase Elliott fans um, was pretty interesting. We saw... Alan Gustafson, on behalf of Chase Elliott, relinquish a lead so that he could pit for four tires. And uh, the car that stayed out, Brad Keselowski, grabbed the clean air and uh, ran away. Had to outduel Jimmy Johnson, as we later learned. That wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> um, that was... um a rather interesting evening. Um, it was yeah. definitely a Coca-Cola 600 dictated by crew chief calls.
1: I was mad at Alan Gustafson for the sole reason, David, that I was already drafting tweets promoting how smart you were, how smart our podcast was. We did a no. whole podcast and video <laughs> telling you how Chase Elliott could and could win the race based on how fast he is and based on his ability on the long runs. And I'm watching at home, I'm watching this play out. We have a long run to end the race, and look who emerges like Superman. It's Chase Elliott with his speed and his ability. And I'm like, this is exactly what David said. This is amazing. I hope everyone's paying attention. This is why you should listen. And then with a half a lap before it would have been damn near official, it all went to hell. And so for that (laughs) I was just a little pissed, but you know, it gave us a little drama. But David, there was, there was a harsh reaction. We were just talking about crew chiefs and their relationships with drivers. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know, you know, I'm not going to speculate and say this is anything long-term bad, if you will, but I, I can only imagine the conversation or the ill will, certainly with the Chase Elliott fan base that, uh, you know, they, they might want to go out and have this second Charlotte race be damn good just to get back on the horse. Uh, oh, oh, yes.
0: I mean, there needs to be an immediate response, uh, from the nine team about their, their own, uh, mishandling of the situation. The, the best thing I saw on Twitter, and forgive me, I, I can't remember who tweeted it, but it was, it was that Alan Gustafson is waiting on the pit wall for Alan Gustafson. It was <laughs> just, that, that destroyed me. But, you know, listen, I, I understand if you are a Chase Elliott fan and you are frustrated because there's a lot going on at Hendrick Motorsports. Chase Elliott, is becoming this well-rounded driver. He's not, he's not impervious to anything, uh, or everything yet, uh, but he's growing and getting there. And Alan Gustafson is a good crew chief. We talked about this on our preview video that he ranked in the 94th percentile when it comes to green flag pit cycle defense. He's a great defender of Elliot's position. But in this case, you really needed someone to understand the trends of what had already occurred within this race. And if you're a Chase Elliott fan, looking over at the 88 team and Alex Bowman is uh, having success. He's already won a race this year. He won two stages in this very race with the crew chief who Chase Elliott won the Xfinity Series championship with in his rookie year that might be tough to negotiate. I might understand why a chase fan would be frustrated in that regard, but you also have to consider that Hendrick Motorsports' improvement is organization-wide and Alan Gustafson has helped foster this race team in that it is producing the fastest car in the series built around uh, arguably Hendrick Motorsports best driver right now. Um, I feel okay in saying that he put Chase Elliott in this position to succeed. He also removed him from this <laughs> position, but you have to consider that Gustafson is a good enough crew chief to, to put him in that P1 spot in the first place. Um, but I understand, I understand the frustration that that was a tough loss. And it's going to be one that Elliott's fans are, are going to have to negotiate. And certainly I think it's something that the nine team is going to have to learn from and maybe go out in these next few races, Charlotte and at Bristol. I mean, I, I would, I would like him for, uh, for there just as much, but go out and, and sort of leave no doubt as to what your top end ability
1: is. Uh so that was the bad. Uh what else stood out? I don't know if you want to pull from the, the Coca-Cola six hundred. I mean, Brad Kislowski won. I feel like they would have stayed out no matter what. It wasn't one of those situations where I'll oh, do the opposite of Chase. I mean, I I feel like they would have stayed out. Uh Blaney came in third, another Penske car didn't I don't know, didn't really show up the most of the night, but then he ends up there in third. Kevin Harvick in 5th he he struggled for most of the night didn't have a lot of speed in qualifying and just was mired kind of in the teens for a long time I felt like and then ends up 5th so Martin Turex Jr 87 laps led uh showed a lot of speed there comes in 6th uh any other takeaways from the 600
0: I think I'll bite on Brad Keselowski because I was I was thinking about this when he was uh giving his post race interview and he called the Coca-Cola 600, a major, and it it meant something to him to win this race. He had the tenth fastest car in Sunday night's race. Wow! And you and I have we've talked about this on on this podcast. We probably we we do give Keselowski credit in that we don't talk enough about him because I think we're not worried about him. I know I've definitely said that he's kind of this guaranteed three wins a season and then i kind of just brushed it off but not every driver has a, is a guaranteed three <laughs> wins a season and brad is this jack of all trades and and maybe a master of none uh he was ranked as the number one non-preferred groove restarter in 2019 but he, he's not at the very top or doing something so much better than everyone else where we just sort of gawk at his ability. He's just good and he's a well-rounded type of good that we do often forget that he's so viable, so malleable in every kind of situation. He's very difficult to write off. I,
1: you,
0: you can't do it because he has, right now in his driving repertoire, he has showed that he's a good passer. He has showed that he's a good restarter. Uh, he can finish races. He can make cars faster. I wrote about that last year, that all the Penske drivers were getting faster as races progressed. And Keselowski was the bellwether in that regard. Um, he's just there. And I think there there is some celebration and that that we certainly don't do enough of that if you have a guy that has very little weaknesses, he might not be the outright best driver in the field, but regardless of how a race breaks, he's a player and he's a contender. And that's somebody that you can absolutely build a championship team around. And Keselowski at age 36, I mean, still very much that guy, hasn't even hit uh, what we believe to be his statistical peak and it's still there. You, you, you can't write a guy like that off. And he proved it. He had uh, no new tires and, and, and drove away and did exactly what he needed to do. It was a good win, but more importantly, it was just a good reminder of, yeah, you might not want to give Keselowski, uh <laughs> too, too many inches. Cause he'll, he'll take a mile.
1: All right. Brad Keselowski winning in the 600, and uh, he's pretty good at our next track in Bristol. This week's race preview is sponsored by
0: monkeyknifefight.com. And if you are listening to us on Positive Regression, then there's a good chance that you're interested in the daily fantasy sports. And if that's the case, monkeyknifefight.com is the daily fantasy site for you. It's the fastest growing daily fantasy website on the planet. And this weekend, it will feature multiple games built around the Bristol races, which include head-to-head matchups and their more or less game, which is their over-under contest. And we know Positive Regression listeners are intelligent, and they are certainly smart enough to win big, so we're going to help you on your merry way. If you sign up for a new account using the promo code POSREGPOD, that is P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, you will receive a 100% match bonus up to $50. Just use the promo code POSREGPOD at monkeyknifefight.com. State and age restrictions apply. See site for full terms and restrictions. Alan, it's been a while since we've been to a short track. Bristol, the 2019 day race. Do you remember how this race uh, kind of came to be, how it broke apart?
1: Well, like most races, you remember the ending, right? It was the Bush brothers going at it, which is always memorable. But when you look back at it, and obviously I had to do a little research, it was not the Bush brothers who dominated this race. It was the Penske cars, and uh, something I did not remember, David. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so it, it, I, and I had to go back this week and and rewatch it just to jog my memory. And oh my gosh, is this race like topical? Uh <laughs> the, the 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 three Team Penske cars combined to lead 344 of the 500 laps and uh they ranked 1st, 2nd and 5th in central speed. Logano ranked 1st, Ryan Blaney ranked 2nd, Brad Keselowski ranked 5th. None of them won this race. Kyle Busch won this race. So how did this happen? Well, <laughs> it is hard to fathom, but it came down to a choice to pit for tires inside the final 10% of the race, and all three of them chose to do that. Ooh. Uh You know— after the Coca-Cola 600 uh, this past week, Brad Keselowski said in his post-race interview that they have lost races, yep. like how Chase Elliott lost that race, and he might have been talking about this one. So <laughs> if you'll remember, Keselowski was furious about his slotting on this Bristol restart uh, late with about 15 to go. He disagreed with NASCAR's call, so that was a whole mess. Joey Logano is actually the one who relinquished the lead to take four tires. He restarted eighth because seven cars stayed out. It took uh, 15 laps, but he made his way up to third before the race ended. Unfortunately, the driver who inherited the lead, and he hadn't led all day, he got the lead, got clean air. That was none other than a seven time Bristol race winner in Kyle <laughs> Bush. I've heard of him. Very easily made it an eight, uh, an eighth win. And the call itself by Todd Gordon, who our listeners will know cost Ryan Blaney a race in similar fashion this year at Phoenix. And we talked about that. Uh, it was an odd call. The tire wear was not that big of a difference in this race. Uh, per the timing and scoring data, we're really only talking about three-tenths of a second drop-off in lap times. Goodyear is bringing a new right-side tire this weekend to Bristol, but the team folks that I've interacted with aren't sweating that so much as they are more curious about the placement of the PJ1 compound, which, if it hasn't been said, I'll say it, that compound will wear off as the race progresses, which means new tires should make less of an impact later in the race than they do in the early stages. So certainly, it would be hard to digest a crew chief making a call like what we saw last year, like what we saw at Charlotte. And this is an instance where we saw, you know, you can, you can make a case. Well, if it's a lot of laps left on the board, then the driver with fresh tires has time to work his way up. Well, this was 15 laps to go. Joey Logano had the fastest car in the race and four tires and he couldn't catch Kyle Bush. So you've got to think that any call with less laps left on the board. Seems to be one that you might not want to make.
1: Yeah, uh, we can touch on this another episode, but just quickly, David, whether it be Bristol last year, Phoenix uh this year with Blaney, or last week in the 600, why, why are people afraid to play offense? We always hear that afterward. I would have loved if we could have played offense, but crew chiefs get conservative sometimes. Why is that? Maybe that's too much to answer right now in our Bristol preview, but it just makes me wonder sometimes.
0: Yeah, and I would actually consider it just playing defense because I, you know, Larry McReynolds made this point in the Charlotte race, and I respect it, but I I disagree with it. This isn't a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. One scenario involves you willingly relinquishing the lead; the other one does not. And when we see the effects of clean air, especially at racetracks where tire wear is pretty minimal, then I don't understand the call of willingly pitting. I would prefer to just announce, okay, we're out here. Come beat us. Like We will take the clean air because that also provides an advantage. You have an advantage with your four tires. By all means, come beat us. Because to that end, you're not just waving the white flag of surrender (laughs) and, and, and giving up and giving up a a potential race win. Uh, you're trying for it. And I think that there have been enough studies for sure about clean air and certainly teams are aware of the advantage that it gives. Why not do this? And this, this is going to be one of those instances at Bristol where you you kind of want the clean air. The tires aren't going to make a, a big impact. And the third factor is restarts because this is an imbalanced racetrack. The lead gets a huge advantage just in terms of restart slotting. And there's no guarantee where you are slotted if you choose to pit.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that because, uh, this is something we always do here on positive regression, but, and we talked about it going into Darlington and we saw the disparity in Darlington so much so. I mean, we started getting talks from drivers about the choose cone, right? I mean, th- this, this talk and this notion of restart lane and just how bad it is. It, it's really starting to get some momentum, David. And, and I hope we're contributing to that conversation. We saw how bad it was in Darlington. We've seen it before in Bristol. So is, is the restart dynamic in Bristol, the disparity between the two lanes is it Darlington bad, if you will? Is it worse, better? Uh, h- how how significant is it at Bristol?
0: It will be as bad or worse, just based on what we've seen in recent races. So, I'll go through the numbers here. Uh, last year's spring race at Bristol, the outside is the preferred groove by a moonshot, uh, retained position ninety two point two percent of the time. The inside retained thirty three point eight percent of the time. In the fall race, it was worse. The track was a lot hotter and there was less grip. Uh, the outside retained 98.41% of the time. The inside, 25.4% of the time. Now, you're probably curious as to the effects of the rules package and what we need to expect with the smaller spoiler this weekend. Well, I'm here to tell you that... Uh, this disparity was also really bad in 2018 <laughs> under the old rules package. Uh, it was 91.2 to 12.1 in the spring, 92.9 to 8.6 in the fall. So... Yeah, not gonna sugarcoat it. It is not, uh, it is not going to go well for those in the inside groove and it really wouldn't shock me if the choose cone or choose lane or, or, or whatever, if that is posited after this weekend's race is over because we are going to visibly see those effects.
1: Alright, something to look at as always, but especially at Bristol. You talked about, uh, the new package or the smaller spoiler. Uh, what, well, first of all, when we get there, David, I, you know, you do so much research and, uh, you know, analytics and studying of the numbers. When you have a change like this and you're trying to prognosticate as we do, what do you look at? Because there's going to be a, a different package, a smaller spoiler, uh, a different a different way, the cars move, if you will this weekend at Bristol, so when you kind of have those unknowns, do you go back to twenty eighteen and try to make some comparisons what do you look what are you looking at personally as someone who you know who does this for a living?
0: I think personally, I would, but I also just kind of look at how things translate from one rule package to the next and try to find any commonality I can. And what typically is the case is that this it doesn't change talent. It either diminishes or accentuates talent. And in this weekend's race, I think we talked about this in advance of Phoenix, but the smaller spoiler won't make a bad passer a good passer. (laughs) That's not how this works. It will just allow good passers – to come to the surface and enhance their numbers. So, this weekend's race, this new spoiler, it will benefit. Uh, it will benefit Martin Truex and Kyle <laughs> Busch and Kurt Busch. Uh, it'll benefit Kevin Harvick on short runs. It'll benefit Chase Elliott on long runs. It's it's kind of salt on the food, if you will. It just brings the flavor to the surface. <laughs> so it'll it we we will we will witness drivers having more of their full capacity. Whereas last year where the larger spoiler, whoever was out front could pretty much dictate that line throughout the race. If you were in the lead, you can pretty much dictate the race from the lead. It was very tough to get around you. We're not going to see that this time. So if there is nothing to uh, encumber um, a good passer, then we're going to be able to see them to craft a pass. Whereas last year we weren't able to see that. So, um, To that effect, this week I posted 2019 passing stats on motorsportsanalytics.com, and specifically I posted surplus passing values at tracks separated by horsepower. So last year, the top passers on the 750 horsepower tracks were Kyle Busch, William Byron, Daniel Suarez, Clint Boyer, and Jimmy Johnson. And they were able to overtake a little bit when most drivers couldn't at all. Uh, the horsepower hasn't changed, but the cap on their ability to maneuver has changed. And, and maybe I'm flawed in my thinking here, but especially Bush, but also Byron and Johnson, given their speed this season— I think they have to be excited about the possibility of a good performance at Bristol.
1: Interesting stuff, and that what a great breakdown. So if you are listening to this, go check that out because I know you like racing. I know you want to learn more, and maybe you're a fantasy player. Uh, there, a lot of good information. David, that's really cool. I look forward to checking that out. Uh, so now it is time for our uh, weekly contrarian contender picks. And David, I won't lie, I caught a lot of heat for picking Chase Elliott last week as my contrarian contender. Um, you know, normally these are kind of off the beaten path picks, not necessarily the favorites, which uh, Chase Elliott was pretty damn close to being and nearly won the race, but I stand by my decision. Anyway, moving on to Bristol. I'll let you start, David. Who is your contrarian contender for Bristol?
0: Mine will be young Eric Jones. Uh, Pre 2019, he scored a second and a fifth in the three races at Bristol prior to the unveiling of the current rules package. And it was that second place finish. He was in the 77 furniture row car. And Kyle Bush, uh, let it be known in Victory Lane that, that he was, he was pretty tough to, tough to track down. Um, it strikes me that Eric Jones might not have taken to the large spoiler, especially at Bristol, he finished 24th and 22nd in those races last year, despite qualifying fourth and ninth. And we've had discussions about JGR speed. I think it's come to the surface that they have speed now. It's just depending on how the, the races break because it's not this universal lights out speed that we saw from them last year, but I actually think that will suit Eric Jones very well. If Bristol offers some longer runs allowing him to just get out in clean air breathe a little bit um he's shown in years past that he's capable of doing that and i don't see why he can't do it now
1: all right not a bad pick whatsoever i'm going with matty d matt de benedetto Uh, just, this is a little more, maybe, uh, you know, heart than head, if you will, but look, we saw what he did last year in the LFR car. Uh, one of the best stories of the year, leading 93 laps and finishing second in the night race. And he finished 12th last year in, uh, in the spring race. And he's just, look, he's been consistently good at Bristol throughout his career. Remember a few years ago, he was in that BK car and finished sixth, you know, more tears there after the race. Uh So he's got something at Bristol. It's not just lucky restart lanes, if you will. It's not just uh, luck of the draw or, you know, happen to have a good day. There's something about him at Bristol that he seems to have a talent, and now he is in the best equipment of his career, one of those Penske cars, as you said, or Penske-affiliated cars at least, that did very, very well last year in the spring race. So I am choosing Matt Benedetto to have maybe a career day in Bristol, and I think that would be a great storyline for a lot of people. One of the top
0: four restarters in the NASCAR Cup Series right now, Mister De Benedetto, and I like that choice. I mean, you think of Team Penske's speed in the spring race; they had the fastest cars, they led laps. Usually, that does the trick. Uh, so he will not be wanting for equipment uh, come the Sunday.
1: All right, we'll see what they have. Uh, at least I didn't pick the favorite, so I won't catch as much heat as I was before. I really thought I thought you were going to try it out a Kyle Busch pick. <laughs>
0: You know, David, he's
1: only won Bristol eight times. Aww. Good yeah. stuff. I was prepared. Good stuff. Good episode, everybody. Uh, don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We are available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. Check them all out. You'll learn a lot of stuff. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That kind of stuff really does help in spreading the word. We do notice it is so appreciated. Tell your friends, especially if it, if it helps you you know, make some of your picks each week. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at posregpod P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. We'd love to answer them for you. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on this week? On
0: MotorsportsAnalytics.com, I wrote about Kevin Harvick and the next phase in his career arc. I posited that his style, the manner in which he's getting results, has changed rather dramatically. Uh, yes, he is aging, but if he leans on what is now his new strength, he will remain viable and contending for wins and championships in the immediate future. Uh, it features all the charts and some film review, uh, so do check that out.
1: Spider charts. Learn them. Love them. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and keep it on the, uh, from over on my side, keep it on the Fox family of networks. Just so much racing going on. You know, you gotta love it. So, uh, just keep it on there. Uh, race up every Monday through Thursday at 6 PM. Sometimes it changes with the midweek races, but I'll keep you updated. Just, uh, follow me on Twitter at Alan Kavana. And, uh, I look forward to being at the track again. It was so good to be back at Charlotte truck series, put on a good show and looking forward to the next one. So thank you for listening to Positive Regression, episode 63. Have a great weekend. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavanaugh. Enjoy everybody.